With more than 500 programs a year, there is never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California, featuring L.S. Dugdale, Dr. L.S. Dugdale. I'm Dr. Jessica Zitter, critical and palliative care physician, author and filmmaker, and it's my pleasure to be your moderator for today's program. In the Bay Area, the Commonwealth Club has suspended its in-person programming, but we're introducing special new virtual programming. You can learn about these offerings at the club's website, commonwealthclub.org. We also appreciate your considering donating to the club. And if you wish to do so, please text the word donate to 415-329-4231 or visit the club's website. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our guest, Dr. L.S. Dugdale, author of the new book, The Lost Art of Dying. Dr. Dugdale is director of the Center for Medical Ethics at Columbia University and an associate professor of medicine. Prior to her 2019 move to Columbia, she was the associate director of the Program for Biomedical Ethics and founding co-director of the Program for Medicine, Spirituality, and Religion at the Yale School of Medicine. She is an internal medicine primary care doctor and a medical ethicist. Dr. Dugdale's career has forced her to become intimate with death in a way very few are, as she is frequently tasked with guiding her patients through their final phase of life. In her new book, Dr. Dugdale discusses how we as a society need to alter the way we view death and how both individual and institutional changes are necessary for our culture to truly embrace how to die well. So please join me in welcoming Dr. L.S. Dugdale. Thanks, Jessica. It's great to be here with you. Such a pleasure to have you. Your book is beautiful and very compelling, and you make a case for bringing back an old wisdom about dying and living that we most certainly have lost in modern times. You propose to do it by resuscitating an old text that served so many people over the centuries. So I wanna ask you this first question, which is why did you write the book? Yeah, uh, great question. I think like you, Jessica, you know, taking care of so many patients that have uh, died poorly made me from the very beginning of my medical training perplexed. We can solve so many problems in biomedicine, but this one issue that will affect all of us that is dying, we haven't really figured out how to do it well. And it struck me very early on that we needed to come up with some way to, in a sense, empower patients to die better. And uh, I, I was puzzling over this for years, wondering you know, what, what would it take? What could this be? And I, you know, read all the books and uh, spoken to a lot of different people who were thinking about these things. And then one day I, I stumbled across this late medieval uh, handbook on the preparation for death. And the Latin title is the Ars Moriendi, uh, Latin for the art of dying. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, for 500 years, this sort of handbook was wildly popular. Uh, why don't we have anything like that today that we could give to patients or that patients could take 
that would help them prepare. And this isn't sort of, you know, 11th hour scrambling to get your stuff together, but how could we prepare over the course of our lifetimes uh, to die well? In effect, how could we live well in order that we might die well? And so that was sort of, that's the, that's the medieval book I stumbled across. Uh, and then that was the project that I've been working on for the last decade or so, uh, culminating most recently in this book. Mm, wow. Fascinating. We, we really walked along some, some parallel paths here. Um, you know, the Ars Moriendi is this sort of like, it's kind of like a what to expect when you're expecting, which is what we all prepare for our babies, right? We are, com we are ready to go when, uh, in terms of pregnancy, et cetera. In the old days around the bubonic plague, which is when it first arose, and, you know, with terrible death and destruction and this lack of control, everyone seemed to have this certain basic literacy or a desire for this certain basic literacy in death. And what do you think has happened in the modern world that made us lose this art? Yeah, so the, this art of dying, as you mentioned, it developed in the aftermath of the bubonic plague outbreak of the mid-1300s. And so the plague came and went uh, throughout Western Europe over the centuries. This wasn't a, a new phenomenon. But this particular outbreak in the mid-1300s absolutely decimated the population of Western Europe. Historians vary in their estimates, but some say perhaps up to as many as two-thirds of the population died from plague. So people, communities were destroyed. And that also meant, uh, now keeping in mind, the leading social authority in Western Europe in the 1300s, 1400s, was the church. That was the sort of head social authority. And uh, so it was really up to the, the church, um, sort of writ large, to help people prepare for death, to bury the dead, to administer last rites, to conduct the funerals. And during this particular outbreak of the plague, there were a couple of things that happened. Priests themselves, who, the priests who stuck around got sick, right? And they died. So there wasn't anyone to officiate. Uh, or priests who were well-connected skipped town. And, you know, as with the current pandemic, uh, those who can go to their countryside villas would get out of town, right? They didn't want to be around whatever it was that was causing this plague, which, of course, now we know is a bacteria carried by rats and fleas. But they didn't know that then. Uh, plague would show up and people who could would get out of town. Uh, so same thing now. Um, and so this, uh, this was uh, after two-thirds of the population died including the social authorities, uh, there was this kind of cry on the part of the people that they be equipped because under the church's authority at that time, people themselves weren't, you know, the lay people weren't able to conduct these funerals. They weren't able to, uh, to, to officiate in the way that a priest could. And so the people really demanded some sort of uh, education, so something that would help them be equipped if another outbreak of plague came back. So that was the sort of impetus for this art of dying body of literature to be born. And it took, it took you know, a good 50, 60 years for it to actually be in circulation. But then it remained widely in circulation uh, for more than 500 years. So really until the early 1900s. And you know, so the very first iteration was something that came out of, of church leadership, we think, although the very first text was anonymous, uh, but it was 
quickly picked up by other religious and even non-religious groups. So there were so many variations on this Art of Dying handbook that really it didn't matter you know, what community you came from, you could find some version that would meet your own needs. And uh, you know, the former uh, president of Harvard University, Drew Faust, is a Civil War historian. And she writes uh, in her book on the Civil War about the Ars Moriendi in the time of the Civil War in the United States. So it didn't just stay in Western Europe, it came to the U.S. And, you know, by the 1860s, uh, soldiers who were, who were dying or knew they were going to die, it became very important for them to make sure they had their last words right. They would give their last words to another soldier and ask their fellow soldier to send these words back to their families so their families would know that they died well as a reflection of a life well lived. So this was... Um, you know, this was very important. Drew Faust talks in her book about by this time, uh, by the Civil War in the United States, if you were from a good family, if you were brought up well, the preparation for death was just something that that you did. You know, now we have estate planning, that sort of thing. Uh, we write our well, wills, we get those things in order. But uh, in the 1860s, if you were brought up well, this sort of lifelong preparation for death was kind of just part of your task. It was, it was another thing you did. Um, and it wasn't morbid, and that I think that's the point that uh, that you and I like to make. This isn't we're not we're not fixating on death. This isn't gruesome. This is you know this is pragmatic. We're all going to die, and so we can die poorly, ill prepared, or we can anticipate and prepare. And I think that's you know after walking with so many patients and sort of witnessing and even being part of you know what I would characterize as you know highly medicalized poor deaths. Uh, being able to empower my patients uh, and families and colleagues and friends to think about their death while they're healthy, while they're young. There's no reason uh, that any of us can't start this now. Um, and, then, and then to have that affect uh, how we choose to live, where do we put our priorities, what are our values, uh, how, you know, what do we want to accomplish? It's more than a bucket list. You know, what matters to us? What really matters? How do we make sense of, of these big questions? And then how do we do that with a view to our finitude, which is inevitable? Um, but, uh, but hopefully the goal is that we arrive there better prepared. And that's really, that's really been the focus of the work. Now, I'm sorry, you asked, why did this kind of go away? Uh, what happened to this art of dying? In why the early it, 1900s, right, as you say. Right. Why did it die out? Um, and I think there's a confluence of factors. Uh, um, you know, we've been in this pandemic, so certainly the flu of 1918 has been on a lot of people's minds. So we have World War I in the U.S. was involved 1914 to 1918. We come back from the war, massive loss of life. And then we have a flu pandemic, massive loss of life. And so by 1919, 1920, the last thing Americans wanted to focus on was an art of dying, right? Women did not want to dress in mourning, which had been the tradition up until that point. And there was a, a real shift in society where uh, people started focusing on what was new, what was cutting edge. We see more uh, new dress. We see new music, new dance. Um, we, and then we start seeing the same uh, progress in medicine, right? So we move into the era of antibiotics. We start moving by the 50s and 60s into our first attempts at resuscitation uh, in uh, surgical recovery units and then into organ transplantation. And, you know, by the 70s, uh, if, you, if you went to the hospital, it was because they were going to keep you from dying. 
but we weren't we weren't expecting to die. And so medicine has really made it possible for us to to dismiss death uh, from view, to push it out of our view. And then there's there's a bunch of other things that that uh, combine to to you know kill the art of dying, uh, and that is uh, the rise of the hospital. We went from several hundred hospitals in the early 1900s to several thousand, and, and so forth. There are a number of things, but suffice it to say, we don't practice this art anymore. Right. We anti-practice this art in some ways, right? right? Constant yeah. avoidance. What do you think COVID raises for us as an opportunity here? Obviously, it's not the bubonic plague, but does it raise any opportunity for us? Yeah. You know, what's so fascinating is the the numbers, right? So I, I never want to minimize uh, the impact of death on a community, right? It's always difficult, Um Death always rips a hole into communities, and it's it's been so difficult this season for so many families. Having said that, we're not at sixty six percent of our population succumbing to COVID, right? So, um, but what COVID has done is raise the threat of death in a way that I think a lot of particularly Westerners or uh, those who have access to good health care or relative abundance in this world, haven't had to think about death. And, you know, every time you leave your home and put that mask on, you're doing that. Yeah. Uh, well, it could be doing that for many reasons, but, but the part of the motivation right. there is, is to, to protect yourself from a potentially lethal virus. So COVID has moved death to center stage. Um, but the amount of fear that's really... Uh, pervasive right now. And you and I, we talked the other day about fear of death. Um, it, I think it's made it hard for some people still to want to kind of walk toward these questions of finitude and these questions of, of human finiteness and the inexorability of death. I think there are still a lot of people who are, who are afraid to do that. Uh, but I'm hopeful uh, part of, you know, when I, I finished this manuscript a year and a half ago, so I didn't know when I wrote a book kind of loosely based on this idea of plague and the need to prepare for death, that we would be in a pandemic when the book was released. Um, but uh, I am hopeful that perhaps as we sort of collect ourselves in the aftermath of this pandemic, the very real threat of death will may, uh, may have uh, prompted some people to want to consider these questions and then engage in, in, you know, reading the book or, or, or your book. <laughs> <laughs> um, you just, I, I love your description about the reminders of finitude, uh, this, this idea of people walking behind a Roman general on, on the battlefield and reminding them, you are mortal, you are mortal. Um, why, what, what do we have, if anything, in our current world that reminds any large percentage of the population. There's always a small number of people who are interested in death. It's a small number. But what, 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 what feelings, what, what experiences do we have that can remind us of our finitude that are part of our current modern day culture? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, but in the pre-COVID era, it's sort of estate planning, you know, and life insurance. I mean, when else do we think about it? I have tried, uh, so I, you know, I have two, two children and I've tried to bring this up sort of continually, actually. Uh, but, you know, you go to the dentist and you have a cavity. There's this little 
little bitty reminder of human finitude, right? Of the fact that we're all going to succumb in some way. Um, so I've, I've tried to bring these things up, but that takes kind of a commitment to being willing to think about these things. And, you know, goodness gracious, with patients, I mean, so many of my patients just don't even want to go there, right? So the, the way they conceive of their illness is what's the Band-Aid? What's the fix? Let's get to it. Let's not dwell on the fact that this means that, you know, God forbid, one day I'm going to die. Uh, so so I, I think there's a certain discipline involved, you know, cultivating any sort of practice takes work, uh, whether that's, you know, a developing a profession or a, a career, a vocation. I mean, we feel that way with medicine. It's a lot of work, a lot of repetition, a lot of training. Um, but in or, th these practices of the Ars Moriendi were meant to be rehearsed. Uh, there's one way that the Ars Moriendi was conceived, which is as a great drama. And the dying person is the central actor in a great drama of which all of the community members have a contributing role. But what this means, and this is so fascinating, what this means, especially for theater lovers, is that everyone at some point is going to be the lead actor. So everyone is the understudy for the dying person. And then as the understudy, every time there's someone in the community who's dying and then dies, the part that all the community members play in rehearsing becomes their own practice for when they're the lead actor. And so to sort of, you know, you know, what do we have that reminds us of that? Not so much. I mean, we can extrapolate things. We can pull things in and sort of sit with them. But really short of a pandemic, uh, it's hard on a corporate level uh, to, to get ourselves into that way of thinking. We're just, we're so far away from it. We don't have, we don't live with a constant threat of death as they did in the Middle Ages. That is really quite interesting. I love that that analogy of, of a play. Um, writing my book almost made me feel this um, obligation to bring to start to bring these kinds of conversations even to my family, my my kids. Um, how has writing this book? And I'll ask you about your practice as a physician with your with your patients and what 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 you're doing in that world as well. But in your own family, with your own friends, children, I don't know how old your kids are, husband, parents, how has this changed the way you talk to them? Yeah. Uh, so I, I have an academic book, which is, I published five years ago. And so my, my daughters are nine and 11, and they've been hearing about this stuff for a long time. And uh, even when I was working on the first book, I had all of these books on death lying around the house and my kids could read, but they could not make sense of it. So they'd go to preschool and talk about, you know, mommy's books on death. And uh, I got a call one day from the head of the preschool <laughs> to have a little chat about what my, <laughs> my daughter was talking about. But at any rate, uh, as they've grown into a little bit more, uh, you know, being able to reason about things. It, it has come up a lot with the pandemic. So I, you know, I'm here in New York City. I've been at Columbia for one year. I was at Yale for 13 years before that. And I moved to New York City, what, eight months before the pandemic broke. Uh, we had barely set up our lives here. You know, we'd kind of thrown ourselves in. And um, suddenly I am on an empty subway going up to a, a hospital that only had COVID patients in it to care for these incredibly sick patients. And 
as you know, I, I'm typically in the outpatient setting. So I, you know, I, I take care of patients in clinic and the hospital is not my forte. And so I'm thrown into that. So all of these things are new and patients are incredibly sick. And my exposure was significant. And so from the beginning of the pandemic, we were, my, my husband and I were having conversations with the kids, you know, we do not know, there's no guarantee that we will get to the other side of this pandemic with all four of us alive. We had very frank conversations. Uh, I, I felt like that was the responsible thing to do. It was also a little bit of a leverage when, you know, lockdown in a tiny apartment wore on all of our nerves and uh, my kids started fighting like cats and dogs and, oh, and then the homeschool, Zoom school thing, oh, it was just a disaster. But, you know, one of our refrains during these very difficult, this very difficult season was, we don't know how long we have together as a family. And so we have to treasure, we have to treasure this time together and we have to do everything we can to prioritize our relationships. It's hard, kids. We know it's hard. We know you don't want to be in this small apartment. Yes, 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 we understand. But we also need to treasure one another. And so to 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 translate that into, you know, that's just my little family here in New York, but my broader family. We, my broader family, when we get together for holidays or special occasions, uh, you know, uh, most recently funerals, actually, uh, having these conversations about what really matters to us as a family uh, has been part of has been part of what we have done, and uh, and and then trying to figure out ways to prioritize our relationships. It, again, it's hard in a pandemic, but making trips to see one another, even if it's flying coast to coast, things like that so that uh, we can continue to grow in our relationships as family members, because that's something we've identified as priorities. Uh, and, and, and again, it's this sort of art of living well that leads to dying well. So, oh, that's that, so did, did I get to it? Oh, yeah. No, that's, I, I love that. And I, I, I think that's a really beautiful example. You, you talk a lot about community. And you talk a lot about the importance of cultivating community. In fact, you describe one patient. I'm trying to remember who she, her name, um, Dora, Cora, who f had a scare, a health scare, oh. and then went back and had four more years oh, of yeah. really cultivating Diana. community. So tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that. What can you do to cultivate community? Yeah. Way. Yeah. So Diana, Diana uh, is her real name and she gave me explicit permission to write about her. I write about her in both books. Um, and the day I first met her, <laughs> she's a larger than life person at baseline, but she would, the day I met her, she was in this, the midst of this, um, total kind of reorientation of all of her priorities. She had just been told by her specialist. I think that she had fewer than, was it fewer than three months or six months to live? And she shows up into my primary care office as a new patient. And she says, Dr. Dugdale, I'm dying. I know I'm dying. I need you to help me through this. And then it was this massive stream of consciousness spew that I could not interrupt that went on for 20, 30 minutes of her telling me essentially her life story. And I had, you know, and this is the, my first meeting with this woman and I, um, was trying to step back and, you know, is this a psychiatric diagnosis? Is this a thyroid diagnosis? What is going on with, with this woman? And in, in, as I came to know her better and better, and we became um, very, very close, 
I realized that she was just at this point of suddenly becoming face to face with her finitude. The threat of death was staring her in the face for the first time. She was a very powerful woman, very well connected, well, well off. Um, and it was, it was re it was forcing her to rethink everything, everything. And as I went on to walk with her over um, several subsequent years, uh, when she didn't die, even though we were told she would, uh, she really took to heart these lessons of the art of dying, of the Ars Moriendi. And she set about trying to put all of the actors in place. So she knew who her close friends were, but she really solidified those relationships and talked to them about the fact that she was dying. And even if it wasn't in three or six months, it was coming soon and she needed them. And these were the ways they could help. And those friends stepped up to the plate in incredible ways, which I, I described some of the stories in the book. Uh, but it was fascinating to see how when when death was put on the table, that this is going to happen. I have this very serious disease and I need you to surround me as I walk toward my end. Uh, her friends, her community rose to the occasion and it was, and her death, her death in the hospital, which I, I got there just about a half an hour after she died. And then her subsequent funeral, it was just incredible. And, and so what, you know, people often ask me, well, like, look, I'm not close to my family or I'm an introvert and there are only, you know, there are only one or two people I want to be around anyway. So it, some people, you know, feel judged that, that they need to have some big community. I'm not saying that. You don't need a big community. You need a couple people who have your back, who will be there for you. And, and, and those are the, you know, those are the people you also want to be having these conversations with about, you know, life and death and what matters and how are you going to be there for one another. And so we're not talking, it's not the whole, you know, the village like it was in the late middle ages, but but identifying who will be there. Sometimes people talk about, you know, you choose a couple people who are there for the birth of your child. You know, who are you going to be there? Who do you want to be there at the very end when it might not be pretty, you know, might actually be a little bit messy and stinky and unpleasant, but you, you'll know who those people are. And then to work at nurturing those relationships and really cultivating them because that takes work. Um, uh, yeah. 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 You, uh, you know, you talk about some rituals, some communities and cultures that still have retained some piece of this secret sauce of knowledge from ancient days, something of the ancient Ars Morienda. You want to maybe just describe a couple of modern day uh, practices or communities that you think are, are kind of have gotten it right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, my, my favorite um, death rituals are the Jewish death rituals, uh, as you know, and I'm not Jewish. So this is all um, by proximity, but um, and, and studying and talking to friends. But uh, there, there's a very beautiful ritual that Jewish communities perform called Tahara, which is cleansing the body and preparing the body, in a sense, purifying the body uh, and, and accompanying the body through that purification process to its rest in the, in the coffin and then, and then usually within 24 hours to its final rest in the cemetery. Um, but this is uh, a ritual that, as I understand it, has been going on for thousands of years. 
And men prepare male bodies and women prepare female bodies. And as they're washing the bodies, so there's a, a, a first round of washing that's attending to every detail, uh, just as if the person were alive. And even before uh, they begin the process of washing the body, they ask for forgiveness in case any sort of uh, indiscretion or um, uh, what would be the right word? Any, any kind of, imp- not impropriety, but in case there's any offense toward the body. So they ask for forgiveness up front. And then as they're washing the body as if it were still alive, they're singing, uh, singing the song of songs uh, from the Hebrew Bible to the body as a way of showing this deep, deep love and respect and care for the, uh, for the person who has died, but whose body remains. And, um, and then there are a couple different rounds of, of washing and preparing, but it's just incredibly beautiful and intimate. And what struck me about it is that so much of our care of bodies today, and like this is what my own family does. You know, you have a relationship with the funeral home and the undertaker and they, you know, take the body and sort of get it all ready to go for the funeral. Um, so much of what we've done in the 20, what, 21st century is outsource, <laughs> whatever century it is, <laughs> Where are we? Uh, is outsource our care of, not only our care of the dying, but our attention to the bodies of the dead. And we've outsourced our, um, our funeral arrangements. And, and this is not an indictment because, goodness gracious, I don't know what I would do. And certainly if, if I had a major loss right now at this moment, you know, I'd be scrambling to figure it out. Um, at the same time, I think this wisdom of traditions, uh, religious, particularly the religious traditions who've been having these rituals, these practices for thousands of years, there's so much to gain from them. And so I write this chapter on ritual, which is not exhaustive and isn't meant to be, but I, I highlight different rituals from a couple of different traditions uh, with the aim of getting us to think about how, how would we handle this? Uh, what, what would we do? I do know this process, um, and this is, probably isn't politically correct, but this process has made me less confident about embalming, which is what I know from my family. Uh, I'm not excited about that. Um, and is it, you know, so there's some, some things that I have my own takeaways about things I would like to do differently. Uh, but, um, yeah, there's so much to gain. And wh- one of the points I make in the book is when we talk about preparing for death, this is, it's not like this work is work we have to invent that somehow we have to sit down at the drawing board and figure out how we're going to do A to Z. The work has been done and really we just need to tap into this sort of the wisdom of the ages and wrestle with it. it, wrestle with it in the context of our communities, what, what matters to us and, um, and, and to take it from there. So, yeah. That's, oh, sorry. That's, that's fascinating. You know, it, um, what, there's, a, there's a medical term called death anxiety and you describe it really beautifully with, when, you, when you talk about Susan Sontag and her final, I don't know how long it was, months, years, something like that. And I just wonder, you know, is there more death anxiety today than there used to be? It, would it have been different for Susan Sontag had she performed Tahara on bodies in her lifetime? Would she have felt less fear, powerful fear that obviously made her and impelled her to, compelled her to do things that probably weren't in her best interest? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the more proximity you have to something, 
the less fear inducing it is. Now I say that, and I know that there are plenty of people who go to medical school because they are very afraid to die. And this, in a sense, uh, medical mastery is the way that they conceive of gaining control over death. And actually Sherwin Newland in his classic book, How We Die, he writes about this too. Uh, so that's, that's well known. At the same time, I think if we can we can put ourselves in a posture of humility where we say, it's not about mastery, okay? I'm not trying to master death, um, but I'm willing to sit with it and have it affect me. Uh, um, you know, I this is tangential, but I was talking with one of my friends who's a, uh, he's a bioethicist and uh, a theologian, uh, African-American gentleman, uh, in the legacy of, of many civil rights leaders. And he, we were, we were talking about sort of the George Floyd stuff. And he, I asked him what, how, what would be an appropriate response? I said, you know, he was coming to talk to my students and, um, and I said, my students are going to ask you what they can do because they're very eager. They want a solution. And he said, you know, really the first step is to lament and lamenting forces us to sit with the sorrow and the sadness. And I think the same is true with regard to death anxiety. We need to sit with it and to feel it and to be sad and to know that it, it is devastating. Death can be absolutely devastating. Um, at the same time, if we just you know shield ourselves from it, that's not going to that's not going to get a, you know solve any problems that's not going to help us die better and so the first step being lament being proximity uh, not mastery but this kind of posture of humility i think is is the way to move forward well that leads into what i think i keep knocking my microphone i apologize that leads into something that i think is a very important conversation that you speak a lot about in your book which is medical culture um, humility, reality, logic, facing bad news, all of those things I think you and I will both agree are not things that have for at least the last, what, 80 years been a part of our training or even something that we value. So I want to start by asking you, how have your colleagues responded to this book? Um, hmm. Differently, I think it depends on on their adherence, how how tightly they adhere to medical mastery. Um, that's definitely in the water, it, especially you know in New York City. You know, we're, we I've been at these high powered institutions. I'm at Columbia, I was at Yale, and I was at U Chicago. So these are places where we we are dominating. Like we are dominating disease and there is no place for admission of defeat, right? There's no place for a culture of humility. And in fact, we are on a rat race to get our publications out there first before anybody else does, right? So, um, so, so my colleagues whom I adore and have amazing respect for who are in that camp with that sort of lens through which they view life and death and disease and, and medicine, um, 
probably don't gravitate as much toward what I write about. Uh, yeah. And, Have you had and, any criticisms? <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting. There, on occasion, people feel judged by my book, mm-hmm. and I, I don't mean it. I, yeah, I don't mean it at all to be a book that is judgmental. Uh, in fact, that's not uh, my patients. If there are any of my patients on this call, they would know that that's not my style at all. Um, but there is a very, I have seen some particular injustices because of our unflinching commitment to medical mastery. And, and I need to call those injustices out. And, and, you know, the big injustices I call out in this book is that doctors are partly culpable for patients dying poorly. Uh, doctors don't want to tell their patients that they're dying. Doctors don't want to deliver bad news. It's natural. It's not, this isn't, you know, of course, who wants to give bad news, right? Um, and, and we're not penalized for not doing it either. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And it takes time and we can't bill for it. And, right. and, and, right? I mean, these right. things, this, these are all the realities of the way me- modern medicine has evolved. Uh, so, so I don't mean the book to be judgmental, but at the same time, I want so much to help my patients do better that I need to sort of call a spade a spade. And I do that in the book. Uh, And if people feel judged by it, then I'm sorry. (laughs) But I hope things improve. Well, I thank you. (laughs) Um, Okay. You discuss religion as a factor in patients and families choosing aggressive care a lot of the time. And you um, actually give an explanation that, that, that the clergy who are advising the patients know little about patient, about palliative and other opportunity, other approaches besides full court press. And you also say that there's this pastoral zeal to encourage faith in God that may also play a role in possibly inadvertently misleading patients about where things are going and what's possible. Do you have any thoughts or recommendations for how we can collaborate better with the clergy and communities to have that not happen? Yeah, great question. So that that assertion in my book is actually based on some studies that were done at Harvard uh, by uh, Tracy Michael Balboni, who are a couple of researchers up there. Uh, Tracy is a radiation oncologist and uh, is very interested in, in helping people die better also. Uh, and, and they found that exactly this after a couple of studies that this, it seems like there's this pastoral zeal to encourage faith in God. So if we're, you know, if we're going to believe in God, then we can't give up. We have to keep fighting. And, and yet it's paradoxical because one would think that people of faith would be the most comfortable at letting go, right? If there's, if you're going to go to heaven or there's something good that's going to happen, then why, why stay in the ICU when you're dying, right? Or you and I just want to get out of there. Um, so, so it, it seems paradoxical at the same, and that's what they were trying to understand. So it seems like there's something pushing patients, and this is the clergy really want their patients not to, or want their uh, faithful, their uh, congregants not to give up. Um, because that would sort of be giving up on God, I think is the, is the thinking. So what can we do? You know, it, uh, so I, I just moved to New York. In New Haven, it was a pretty small community. And actually, there were local religious groups that invited me in uh, to, to talk about these things. And then there were, uh, I, I counseled with a number of uh, churches, church communities who were putting together workshops, a Saturday workshop on advanced care planning and things like that. Uh, so uh, to the extent that we can engage through, you know, community, community, um, 
community programs or community centers is the word I was looking for, uh, churches, neighborhood groups, senior citizen centers. I think that there's a place uh, for, I mean, and I guess, Jessica, this is people like you and, 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 and I to, to jump in and have these conversations. But I will say that anyone who has accompanied uh, uh, someone who is dying is, is equipped with minimal training to, to encourage these conversations within their local congregations, parishes, neighborhood clubs, whatever. Uh, because, um, I mean, and, and Jessica, some of your own work on, on caregivers, right? Um, caregivers really become experts at some of this work by virtue of being in the trenches 24 hours a day, caring for the dying. And, and they learn things that many doctors never learn about what it takes to be there around the clock for a dying person. And there's so much wisdom there. Uh, so I do know, for example, uh, one church I knew of in New Haven did train some lay leaders in the, in the community to then go out and have these conversations with other members of the community. So it doesn't, it doesn't take extensive training. A little, a little bit could go a long way in making a difference. I'll just mention briefly that uh, the the community in Wisconsin that where a bioethicist sort of took this on as a matter of importance and something like 95% of their small town in Wisconsin ended up completing advanced directives, whereas nationally it's something like 30 to 40% of us have advanced directives. And again, that's something like a, a, a DNR order or not having a DNR or a living will is kind of different language for it. But um but for the most part, you know, most people don't want to go there. We know that. And or they sign a form and it's a one one and done one time deal. Uh, but but the community can come together. We can come together. You don't have to be a doctor to do this uh, to make a difference in your in your local family community. And I think that's a really important point just to make to make to all the people out there about talking about death, planning for death is that it can't be a one and done. It can't be. Oh, I filled out my advance directive and I stuck it in the in the, in my, uh, safe, it's a, it's an ongoing living, breathing community process or process, at least with this person that you choose to be your surrogate it has to happen and evolve over, over time. Um, do your patients ever ask you if you're religious and what do you tell them and how does that answer impact your relationship with them? Yeah. Um, it's funny. I think, I think that sometimes people, people know, right? So um, I was brought up in the Christian tradition and I don't, I, I don't bring that into my office visits, but particularly with uh, some of my African-American patients. And I had, I had a large number of African-American patients in New Haven, particularly. Um, and then here in New York, my population is mostly from the Dominican Republic. So also tends to be more, you know, culturally Catholic, um, but people, patients will often say, oh, God bless you, doctor. You know, they'll say, God bless you, doctor. Bless you, honey. Uh, and um, and if I return that, I'll say, well, bless you, too. You know, then there's this sort of, oh, wait, oh, wait. Um, and sometimes they will ask. Um, I think some, yeah. And very few, though. I think sometimes if if I offer a blessing back after they've offered a blessing to me and I say, bless you, too, or God bless you, too. Uh, they, sometimes they'll, they'll put probe a little bit more, but I would say on the whole, directly asking about religion probably, uh, isn't as common. Having said that though, um, 
when it has come up, I if patients ask me directly, I'm, I'm happy to tell them because I think it's helpful to the extent that our patients can relate to us and we can relate to them. Uh, that strengthens the relationship between clinician and patient. So whether that's connecting over, you know, you name it, a love of Mexican food or sailing or, or whatever it might be, um, uh, it is, um, it's, it's helpful to try to let the guard down a little bit uh, with our patients. So I, I found that an effective way to, to connect with them. And it's so interesting because, again, coming back to medical culture and our training and how we are expected to behave as doctors, you know, I think there's a sort of hidden curriculum or hidden expectation that you're not supposed to acknowledge that you might have any kind of spiritual beliefs or practice that you're supposed to be science and data driven and that's who we are. And I think that really has, in my experience, uh, put a barrier between me and many of my patients. And when I lift that barrier, um, I find this profound ability to connect in ways with my patients that I wouldn't have been able to connect with otherwise. I'm going to tell you a story because it's a good story. And this is probably going to get me into trouble, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Because We not? love those stories. <laughs> when I was first sort of setting up shop as a junior, as a new doctor, I was done with my training. One of my patients whom I have also written about with her permission asked me out for martinis. I don't drink martinis, but she asked me if I would want to go drink martinis with her. And I called up my mentor in ethics, who had been a mentor for many years, and I said, Dr. So-and-so, my patient asked me uh, if I want to go drink martinis with her. What do you think? And I had asked a couple of other sort of older, wiser physicians at Yale, and they had told me that, you know, it wasn't, wasn't appropriate and I should maintain my professional boundaries. And this old mentor of mine, he said, oh, go drink martinis with your patient. There's nothing better for the doctor-patient relationship. And that, you know, from my very, very early years of practice did shape me. It made me realize that actually, if I were, if I were the only doc in a small town, right, I would be going to weddings, funerals, right, baptisms, whatever it is, birthday parties, why is it just because I'm an Ivy League doctor in a university town, I can't have the same humanity? And, um, you know, the pressures in modern medical practice really do strip the physician's humanity. And anyone who's ever been a patient knows that doctors can be just a pain in the butt, right? We don't have any time for you. Um, but so to the extent to which we can restore that humanity. So my family has now you know, done several things uh, with my patients who have invited my whole family along to events and we've all gone. And it's been great for my relationship with the patients. It helps me understand them better. I suddenly see them as a multidimensional, you know, person uh, rather than just this, you know, person in a paper gown in an exam room, very clinical and sterile. So I think it's good. I think it's good to let our guards down still, you know, I, yeah, I'm still the doctor, you're still the patient, but we're human beings. And first we're human beings. And then later down the pecking order, we're in our professional roles. Right. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Here's a question um, from the audience. How important is humor in preparing for death? Uh, <laughs> that's great. Um, I think it depends on how funny you are, right? Um, <laughs> I, I I would say, you know, there are people who are exceptionally funny and that serves them very well. Uh, there are patients for whom humor will fall flat. 
and so part of the art of medicine is trying to discern with each person in front of me what it is, how it, how it is that I can best relate to you. And, and that does take, that does take a certain amount of discretion. And so it might not always be humor, but for some people, oh, humor is fantastic. And people who are just always funny without any filter, I think that's a very special gift and a very special talent. And it goes a long way. Uh, as a doc, it doesn't work for every patient in front of me. And I, I don't have that talent. So <laughs> it's, not, it's not, right. not something I have to deal with. But yeah. Patient-centered care is what you're saying. Patient-centered, right. person-centered care. That's right. Can you just give a quick uh, recap of who created, and obviously it was over hundreds of years, the Ars Moriendi? Yeah, so very quickly, the very initial iteration emerged out of the Council of Constance, which met in uh, the early 1400s, because I'm not a Catholic Church historian at all, but and I'm not Catholic, but the, the Catholic Church had two and then three popes in the aftermath of this bubonic plague outbreak. So when you have three church leaders, it's just a mess. So they met in the early 1400s to resolve this. And when they finally got their you know, stuff in order with the church, then they had the energy to shift to what are the needs of the laity? What is it that people are asking for? And the, the big thing was this help with preparing for death. And so it's out of the Council of Constance. They think, I mean, we think that um, the former chancellor of the University of Paris who attended the council uh, is credited with having provided provided an initial text that formed some of the basis of the first version of the Ars Moriendi, uh, but we don't know. It, it is an anonymous author and then many spinoffs. And some of the spinoffs, we know who wrote them and some we don't. Right. Right. So here's a question um, that I think is very practical and important. What concrete steps should we take while we're alive to make death easier? Yeah, great question. So then there are all the different domains that I talk about in the book. Uh, but let's just say just to even broach the subject. Uh, this is what I do with my patients. This is what I do with my family members. I, I just most basic question. Uh, so, uh, you know, Auntie Susie, if you were to end up in the hospital with coronavirus, who who do you want the doctors to call if you're too sick to make your own decisions? I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm not saying you're going to get coronavirus, but let's just say very basic. Uh, you end up in the hospital and, and they ask you, who should we talk to? Who would you say? And then she says somebody and I, and they, okay, well, have you talked to this person about what you think about the hospital? I mean, dying in the hospital, a breathing tube. I mean, we've all heard about this stuff now with COVID. It's not, not a secret, right? The ventilators, the cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR. So just starting with that basic question, usually, you know, I would say 99.9% .9 of the time, it works for me to open the door to this conversation. Who should we call? Okay, then what do you think about X, Y, and Z? And, you know, there are lots of, uh, I mean, Jessica's website has tons of uh, concrete resources listed. Uh, but Five Wishes is another one, you know, that gives you the language, the scripts kind of to walk through this. But then once you get through those basic levels, you can start talking about bigger questions. Well, let's just say this is our last year together. Um, what if something, is there something we should do different? Is there something we should do differently as a family, as a couple, as a what, you know, X, Y, Z, you fill in the blank. Um, 
And then what do we need to prioritize? What do we need to do differently to prioritize those things? And this is not just bucket list things. This is even things like um, reconciliation in families. This is things like beliefs. Uh, I had somebody ask me this morning, he said, I was raised Catholic and I left that a long time ago. So how do I think about my funeral if I've rejected Catholicism? And I said, well, have you rejected all of it, right? There's a lot, there's a lot to Catholicism and I'm not even Catholic, right? So is there anything that, and, and have you spent any time thinking about this, right? If you're going to, if you definitely don't want a Catholic funeral, do you, what kind of funeral do you want? So we can give attention to these things, um, but what matters, and, and especially as we think about our finitude, what matters with regard to the preparation for death? What do we need to change now in the context of community uh, to do things differently? Beautiful. What do you do if you're living in a family where people don't want to talk about this? So I hear stories a lot where parents, I have patients say they're 60, 70, 80, and they're like, I tried to talk to my kids, but they just put their fingers in their ears and say, we don't want to talk about it. What do you do? Yeah. So I should also say that there are some cultures, particularly some of the Eastern cultures, where it is very common for the elders to defer to the children to make all decisions. Uh, we, we actually see this quite a bit. Um, so, so there are different cultural, uh, approaches to death that we have to be cognizant of and respectful of. Um, at the same time, if people don't want to have a conversation, then maybe doing something in writing is helpful. Maybe sharing literature I, I, in the clinic when patients don't want to talk about this stuff. Sometimes I just hand them a booklet, you know, I'll hand them a, a copy of some, a, a brochure that gives them just a, a little bit. And I say, this isn't, I'm not, I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm only doing this because I care about you. And I want to make sure you've thought about these things. Read this on your own time in your own space. Know that I'm happy to talk about it when we meet again, but it, this is baby steps, right? This is this is a lifetime conversation. And so it's kind of like talking with your kids about the birds and the bees. Um, there are different ways that people do this. And some parents hand their kids a book and say, you know, read this because their kids won't talk about it. Um, so, so there are different approaches we can take with nuance, with patience, a little bit at a time. And I think I think you get there uh, sort of slow and steady. Well, what advice would you give to a patient who is dealing, for example, with an oncologist who they feel isn't giving them the full story, keeps offering chemotherapy, chemotherapy, and, they, and they're saying to you as their primary care doctor, I, I just don't really understand what's happening. And the doctor doesn't seem to want to talk to me about it. Uh, what recommendation would you give to your patient about having more access to the truth about where things are looking, that they're going? Yeah. I, I mean, this circles back to the culpability of physicians one medical educator read my book and wrote to me and said, you know, every doctor needs to read this book because, you know, doctors are as much a part of the problem as anything. Uh, so if, you know, I'm a primary care doctor and I, I have found that um, I personally advocate for my patients. So it's not uncommon for my patients to come in it used to be, you know, stacks of papers. Now I can pull everything up on the computer, but say, I was given this diagnosis. They said the scan showed this and this and this. I don't know what any of it means. Now they're talking about surgery and chemotherapy. I still don't know what they're talking about. Can we dedicate my appointment to just going through this information? And I've done that for my patients. So I think having an ally 
uh, on the inside, whether it's the primary care doctor or the oncologist or a palliative care doctor or someone else you know who understands medical jargon and can accompany you to the appointments, I think is is helpful if you feel like you're not being heard. There have been times, you know, I'm not a perfect doctor, and there have been times where patients have shown back up with family members because they felt like whatever I said the first time didn't make sense. And now the family member's coming to advocate for mom. Um, there's more I can say. I don't know if you're giving me a signal that we do. Are we okay? Uh, yeah. No, no. I'm, okay. I'm not. I'm, I'm getting signals from, from yours, but we're good <laughs> okay. for now. We're good for now. Um, well, you, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, I'll just say one more thing. And, yeah. that, and I talk about this in the book, but, and I give some questions that you can use to sort of push your doctor. So push for a diagnosis, push for a prognosis, push for an explanation of not only the benefits of a particular intervention, but what are the risks? What is the impact on quality of life? Is mom going to be able to get out of bed again? Or is this chemotherapy going to just wipe her out and she's going to live out her last days just sick from chemotherapy? I mean, really pushing for that information is really important. So I'll stop there on that. No, beautiful. Very important points. So you mentioned palliative care, um, a subject near and dear to my heart, of course. Um, You even talk about it in the book, a study that was done at Mass General about patients with metastatic lung cancer. And in fact, those who were intervened, uh, who received a palliative care consultation ended up living, I think, two months longer than patients who didn't. So um, tell me a little bit about your attitude about the rising-ish, well, it's now rising. It's been rising for certainly since the early 2000s, field of palliative care medicine. And how do you use it in your practice? Yeah, great. I am enormously indebted to palliative care. Um, Just briefly, I'll say that uh, I'm a clinical ethicist, so I also do ethics consults in the hospital. But during the COVID pandemic, our palliative care service, who works very closely with ethics, ramped up their, um, their operation in a sense, made teams that would go around and talk with all patients in the emergency room about advanced care planning. These were all patients with coronavirus who are now sitting in the emergency room, having trouble breathing. We know that most of them don't have advanced directives, especially at our hospital. They're mostly uh, ethnic minorities, so they're even less likely to have uh, advanced directives, DNR orders or or full full code orders. And, And so our palliative care team was instrumental, instrumental in helping patients address uh, end-of-life concerns even before uh, they were they were at that point. Uh, so, but as you know, Jessica, and I, I'm always nervous talking about things with experts, and you're the expert on this, and I'm not. But um, the palliative care still we just don't have enough in this country. So, in large urban places where you and I live, yes, amazing resources, amazing resources, amazing people, strong commitments. Uh, but you go outside of major urban centers in the U.S., and it is it is hard to get access to good palliative care, and that's something that we really need to ramp up uh, and do more of. Yeah, it's a really it's a conundrum because <clears throat> we sort of delegated relegated all of this type of conversation and patient centered work to the palliative care subspecialty, which is really not a sustainable realistic approach. And, and, and we're sort of now talking about primary palliative care where we want everybody, the surgeons, the oncologists, the, the renal function doctor, the renal doctors to learn how to do these same types of communication uh, as the palliative care people. And, and that is, I think, probably a more realistic approach um, to 
to uh, getting this type of behavior towards patients out. Um, that brings me uh, to, to a question. You, in fact, um, you know, more and more programs, and by the way, that's probably, this will be my second to last question, I believe. More and more questions are sort of beginning to teach doctors communication skills. Um, there's the vital talk uh, track. There's serious illness communication that came out of Ariadne Labs to try to help doctors be better at breaking bad news about a patient's prognosis. Um, and yet you make the point that those skills really aren't enough in and of themselves to make sure that these conversations actually happen. And so what do you think is missing in addition to those very important skills to get these kinds of conversations about mortality transmitted more, more commonly? Yeah. So probably again, not a very popular answer for doctors, but I, I think it, it's true, true compassion. Right. If we're not, I, I wrote an essay once that I said um, in the essay, it's no wonder that doctors love their patients. They're writing about a patient. And the editor said to me, nobody's going to believe that doctors love their patients. I want you to change this. And, and that's stuck with me because the way that I have tried to approach my patients is in this spirit of, of kind of, like familial love, like love of neighbor or, or something like that, where we actually really care about the people in front of us. This isn't just a professional arrangement. And so if we really care about the people in front of us, then it makes a difference that we have these conversations. So you can, you know, medical students classically, they just want the algorithm. They just want, like, give me the, the checklist, right? A tool going, give me the checklist manifesto and I will, I will check things off. But patients know when they're just a thing on a checklist. And patients want to be genuinely cared for. And so if we are genuinely caring for our patients, if we are regarding them with that sort of neighborly love, then we will have these difficult conversations. Uh, no matter how difficult it is for us, how much we ourselves might not be at peace with these, you know, the, the issues we're discussing, but we'll do that because it's for the good of the person in front of us, the person who has entrusted himself or herself to our care. Absolutely. Beautifully said. All right. I think this is our last question. And I think we probably have about a minute left, maybe a little less. What would you like a lay person to take away from this one point that you want a lay person to take away from your talk and your book and one point that you want a physician to take away from your book? Oh, well, really, it's, it's the same. How about that? In one minute. It's that we all have work to do. We all have work to do. And it starts now. Uh, don't wait. It starts now. Wow. That, that is better said than I could have said. So uh, thank you so much. I am, um, thrilled. I, I have to say, I think that your book is, is so profound and I hope everybody on this, on this uh, webinar reads it. Um, I learned so much from it and I really feel a hope for the future um, as we start to think about ways to reconnect with this, this ancient wisdom and uh, you're really helping to lead the way in a, in a way that, that I think is very inspiring. So thank you for all the beautiful research. Oh, I think you, you need to make that wood block. The wood blocks. <laughs> work on that. I'll work on that. Um, all right. Well, let's see. Here we go. So I think we've reached the point in our program where there's time for, well, we've actually done our last question. And so I'm going to say thank you to Dr. Ellis Dugdale, author of the beautiful book, The Lost Art of Dying. 
And we want to remind everyone that you can get a copy of Dr. Doug Dale's book by visiting your local independent bookstore. We are thankful to all of our viewers online. And as I noted earlier, the club will continue to provide virtual programming in the days ahead. Please visit us regularly at thecommonwealthclub.org to learn more and to donate. And I'm Dr. Jessica Zitter. And now this virtual program of the Commonwealth Club of California is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.